This is Our American Stories, and those are two sounds that we love here, the sound of great gospel music. And if you remember where and when this song was used best in a movie, well, it's Secretariat. And Secretariat came to us as a shining example of aristocracy, big, handsome, full of charge. He walked with style, stood tall, and displayed the best manners on paper. He wasn't perfect, losing five of his 21 races, as if to say... I'm only human. But to the eye, he was perfection itself, and when he performed, he took our breath away. Yet some may ask, how could he have been voted 35th among the 20th century's 50 greatest athletes? Furthermore, how could a horse place a close second behind Wilt Chamberlain's unimaginable 100-point game on ESPN's Who's Number One list of greatest sports performances by an individual athlete? And the answer? Because he was secretariat, more than just a horse. He had a kind of a princely quality about him, physically, mentally, he had the temperament, he had the physique, he had the heart. He had brilliant speed, great stamina. The girths which are made by saddlers wouldn't fit him. They had special ones made to go under that big belly. It is said by experts that he was the perfect horse in measurement. You could look at Secretary and you knew that he was something special. In addition to being an extraordinarily uh, good runner, uh, there was a very imperious uh, look to him. It had a big flashing copper coat on him, and when the sun's rays hit him, it was a beautiful thing to see. It was the way God intended to, uh, to make a horse. You can't anticipate greatness. You can't really define it, I suppose. It's something that, that, that God, every once in a while, sticks in somebody. And, uh, and because it comes from God, um, the gift can't be ignored. And it can't be defeated. And the great athletes use it, even if they're not human. So true. And despite the universal praise ultimately lavished on this horse in a million, his career began without fanfare on July 4, 1972, as his trainer... Lucien Lorraine looked on from the owner's box. He made his debut as a two-year-old at Aqueduct. And unfortunately, he had some trouble in the starting game, got banged around. The rider did a terrible job. Had him been in trouble the whole way. I mean, he was, you know, never had a chance to run, and everybody saw it. On the outside, it's Quebec 6th, followed by Fleet and Royal 7th. Version is 8th. Jacques Coup on the inside 9th. Secretariat is 10th. Lucian got up and he kicked the chair across the box and he said, damn, that horse should never be beaten. 
And that's when I knew that Lucian thought we had a really good horse. Secretariat's chief problem in his life was he was handled by people. Had he been handled by someone other than flawed human beings, he would have been undefeated. After finishing fourth in his all-too-human debut, Secretariat won his next two races, the second under a new jockey, Ron Turcott. But it wasn't until the Sanford Stakes in Saratoga Springs, New York, when the horse that would capture America's heart gave us just a glimpse into the future. Here's Secretariat's jockey. I was sitting behind two horses. I started to make my move because it was an opening, and when them two horses come back together, they just ricocheted off him. And it's just like nothing happened. He went on and won by himself. That was the beginning where he really impressed me. Ronnie Turcott wins it aboard Secretariat, under the wire, the winner by three lengths. He separated himself uh, from the rest of the crop pretty effectively, especially his races at Saratoga that summer. By the time that he approached his third start, then it was happening. I mean, then there was a lot being said in this red horse that Lucian Lauren has, and uh, it could be something special. You know, it could be. In the middle of the racetrack, Secretariat with a rush moving to the leaders. They come now to the top of the stretch. Sunny South has the lead by a neck. Here comes Secretariat on the outside, rushing to contention. When Secretariat made his move in the hopeful, it was unlike any move that I'd ever seen a two-year-old make. It was uh, the kind of a move that you just t- it takes your breath away, that you could hear the collective gasp from the entire Saratoga grandstand. It was just like, wow, did you see that? They straighten away in the stretch and Secretariat takes the lead by two lengths. He circled the entire field in 22 and one for a quarter, going around the turn about eight wide. And you don't see any horse, let alone two-year-old do that. Physically, he was mature beyond his years. He was clearly the dominant two-year-old in America. There was a sustained interest in Secretariat, and he was anticipated to uh, as a, a real triple crown potential horse uh, right along. For a two-year-old to become horse of the year, he can't just be a very good two-year-old. He has to break the mold. He has to do something really sensational and different. Secretariat looks like a two-year-old who could turn into a super horse. Beyond his explosive acceleration and lofty bearing, Secretariat exuded a human dimension that quickly gained him national fame. Secretariat just had a regal way of standing before he was going out to work out, and uh, he looked like he was in charge. He was beautifully balanced and had this rich red color and the interesting blaze, but the best thing about him was his eye. It was incredible. All of a sudden, he'd be looking at stands, he'd walk down, slow down, finally come to a little halt. Like he was saying hello to that pretty girl in the stands. Every time he heard a camera, he turned. He'd stop and turn. I saw a secretary once watch an airplane fly overhead. I'd never seen that before. He had that star quality about him. Sort of like the movie stars arriving on the red carpet at the Academy Awards. He would look over, give you the perfunctory, it's me, good to see you, gotta go. Instead of a bit player uh, on the New York stage, he would have probably been an English stage actor doing Shakespeare. If he could have talked, he'd have been a son of a because he was arrogant. He was the heavyweight champion of the world, is what he was, and he knew it. And when we come back, more on Secretariat's life. We do it all here on Our American Stories, and you can't wait to hear the rest of this great story. More after these messages.
This is Our American Stories. We continue the story of Secretariat. And why are we doing it? Well, why not? And rarely do you hear my opinions about anything, but there's nothing to me like being at the far turn of a major sport sporting event called horse racing. And by the way, this has never changed. You know, you watch an NBA game and commercials ruin the momentum and the flow. You watch all kinds of other sports. There are no commercials in the middle of a two-minute race. You see it from beginning to end. No one and nothing can change it. If you ever get a chance, go to the Kentucky Derby, go to Santa Anita and see a great race there, and bring a lady, and just sit at that far turn and watch these beasts roar a race around that turn with jockeys sitting on a, on a horse going 35 to 40 miles an hour, and they're practically riding them bareback. It is something to see. And let's pick up the story. That marquee quality sparked investor interest throughout the racing world. In early 1973, shares for Secretariat were sold for a record total of $6 million. Then, after winning his first two starts of the year, the unexpected happened in his Kentucky Derby tune-up at Aqueduct Racetrack in Queens, New York. Here's Jim Gaffney, Secretariat's exercise rider. The day before the Wood Memorial, I worked him a, an eighth of a, a three-eighths of a mile, and I had to kick him to, to make him work, and I never had to do that. And I told the foreman, there's something the matter with this horse. I said, you better have him checked out. And this word never got back to Lucian Lauren. Ronnie said the horse was acting funny in the gate, and every time he pulled on the rein, he jerked his head back that he had never done that, and he couldn't understand it. 70 yards from the finish, it's Angolite in front, Sham on the outside. And here's the finish, Angolite holding on, winning it by a neck. It's a big upset. Secretariat finishing third in a photo. And as you can imagine, the investors weren't thrilled. I mean, they had just popped down $6 million, and in this tune-up to the Derby, just a terrible run. And they thought, what have we done? Well, with the Derby just two weeks away, serious questions arose about the jockey's ability to guide Secretariat to victory in the first leg of the Triple Crown. Secretariat's trainer, Lucian Lauren, didn't know what to think. But others were losing confidence in the horse. Secretariat came to Kentucky with a huge number of detractors. All of a sudden, Lucian Lauren brings him into Louisville, and there's just all this uh, uh, controversy about uh, rumors that he might have hurt himself uh, in the Wood Memorial. And, and Jimmy the Greek at that time was going around telling people the week of the Derby that the horse was lame. This horse was such a great two-year-old. He was horse of the year as a two-year-old. And now he's coming in here with a chance to be maybe the greatest thing since Man of War. But you can't block out all these rumors, and, and you wonder, what's going to happen here today? Well, with all those negative rumors, Secretariat was still a 3-2 to two favorite to win the biggest race of his young life. And by the way, the biggest race in racing. A record 134,000 hummed with expectation. This is Churchill Downs, Louisville, Kentucky, on this first Saturday in May, 1973. I'm Jack Whitaker, and this is the 99th running of the Kentucky Derby. Moments from a start. Secretariat is in the gate. Mike Gallant is moving in. Secretariat throws his head a bit. They're at the post. And they're off. For the lead. On the inside, that's Angolite for the lead. He broke dead last. And he was dead last after a quarter of a mile. Then Forgo on the outside, Navajo, followed by Secretariat. Into the spring of his three-year-old year, Secretariat really started making up his own mind. He seemed to understand racing. 
and seemed to want to dictate his own strategy. Secretariat is fourth and moving up on the outside and is now third and moving at the leaders as they come for the head of the stretch. They're at the head of the stretch and Cham is the leader. He leads it by a length. Secretariat is in the center of the racetrack and driving. And then he made this tremendous move and we knew that we had seen something historic and maybe perhaps we were going to have a great triple crown winner. Now and there's the stretch, it's sec Secretariat. Secretariat on the outside to take the lead. Sham holding in second. It's Secretariat moving away, he has it by two and a half. And I read back and hit him a couple of times. And shoot, he just took off, I just put my stick down and he, he went by two and a half very easily. Sham, then on the outside, our native. That's the wire, it's going to be Secretariat. He wins it by two lengths. Secretariat just broke the old Kentucky Derby record. People were looking at the tote board. He ran the last quarter mile in 23 seconds, which is unprecedented in the Derby. Secretariat did something that no horse ever did. He went each of the five quarters faster. It just defied logic. Another quarter mile he might have taken to the air and flown, which is obviously what was in his blood. As the first horse to run the mile and a quarter Derby in under two minutes, Secretariat turned what had been uneasiness in Louisville into confidence in Baltimore. He went off as a 3-10 to 10 favorite in the Preakness Stakes at Pimlico Racecourse, where I lived just six miles away and spent my favorite Saturdays of my life for eight years. This is the tightly turned second leg of the Triple Crown. Well, it's almost ready. The horse is just about to move into that starting gate. The weather is perfect, and we're just waiting for a fine horse race. Secretariat was still running with an explosive style, and centrifugal force would carry him wide on the turns. And Pimlico is considered to have tighter turns. That was the one I was worried about. And they're off. Oh, the early lead. That deadly dream on the outside at Coley Taj. Then it's also torsion on the outside. In the Preakness, he broke last again. Now he's going to the turn. You think it's going to be the same thing as the Derby. Then our native and Secretariat is last again as they move into the first turn. Turcotte took a hold of him made it almost an imperceptible gesture with his hands like a man adjusting his cuff took the horse to the outside and he went boom he went from last to first in about 180 yards sham under an easy hole right now but here comes secretariat he's moving fast and he's going to the outside he's going for the lead and it's right now he's looking for it he just accelerated and just circled the field and i said good lord what is turcotte thinking about i mean this horse is cooked because you just didn't see a horse ever make a move like that especially in the first turn it was far too early for him to have been moved strategically ronnie wouldn't have asked him to run that soon in the race, it had to be what the horse wanted to do. Secretariat holding it by a length and a half. Here comes Sham second on the outside now. Now it's Secretariat the leader by a length and a half with Sham moving into second. Once I get to the lead there and I just drop him on the rail and just turn his head loose. And he went back to Galpin, his old self, you know, he just loping along. You know, I kept thinking Belmont. Secretariat by two lengths. Sham driving second. There's a strong left-handed whip again by Tinkai. He goes to it time and time again. But Ronnie Turcotte has his whip put away. And Secretariat has him put away. He's beginning to draw away. It is Secretariat. He's coming to the wire. He wins it by two and a half, almost three. He went in 
to another level of, of consciousness in the uh, public eye. There were actually kids standing on the rail as he came by. This horse had now captured the public, not just a racing crowd. Secretariat did it again today. He won the Preakness at Pimlico, and he's now two-thirds of the way toward the Triple Crown. Expectations were very high for any horse, not just Secretariat, to win the Triple Crown. After 25 years since Citation had won it in 1948, there had been a lot of very good horses that had tried to win and failed. Winning the Triple Crown seemed almost impossible. It uh, was tantamount to the 400 hitter in baseball or the DiMaggio 56-game hitting streak. This was something that uh, most Americans had finally concluded would never happen again. No one will ever win the Triple Crown again. And by the way, they thought that because of specialized breeding. In each of these races, if you're not a race fan, the Kentucky Derby is what you'd call the mid-length race. The, the Pimlico is the sprint. And then the Belmont, it's a mile and a half, which is forever for horses. And so horses, as they became more specialized in the breeding, well, it just became to seem that it was impossible to have one horse do all of these things. And that's why it had been so long. Many people, people speculate that uh, there had been a Triple Crown winner, and why it's still so hard today. And we had American Pharaoh do it just recently. And by the way, you want to hear a terrific story. Me, my dad, and American Pharaoh, New York Times column written by a guy named Gary Ginsburg, who is an executive vice president at Time Warner. And he recalled all those days at the track where he and his dad would go down to Aqueduct or Belmont. He was a New Yorker. And they'd always wanted to see a Triple Crown winner. And, well... His father saw one with Secretariat, but didn't really live long enough or good enough quality of life to witness American Pharaoh. Alzheimer's had sunk in, and, well, the dad got to watch the race with the son, but the dad had no idea what was going on. And so it was a really a lament of times past and a common passion between a father and a son, whether it's fishing, horse racing, whatever it might be. I take my little girl to horse racing. Uh, as often as I can into great horse races. And when we come back, the greatest of all the horses, Secretariat, after these messages. Not since Man of War in 1920 had a horror so captivated the nation. Now, the 1 to 10 favorite had a chance to succeed where seven horses failed since 1948 to win the Belmont Stakes after taking the first two legs of the Triple Crown. June 9, 1973, the day of reckoning. Broke bright and clear. By post time, millions of Secretariat fans put their money where their hearts were, some for the first time in their lives. Of the 70,000 that overflowed the stands, a few had been at the track since sunup. I was there at 6 o'clock in the morning. I was there all night. I fell asleep against a tree by his barn. The fittest I have ever seen a horse. His eyes were big as saucers. His nostrils were flared. He was nickering. 
his ears were playing, his muscles were rippling, and he's walking around on his hind legs. And I remember thinking to myself, boy, what are we going to see today? Before the race, you could see not only what Secretariat meant to really veteran, hard-boiled, you know, step over a guy with a heart attack so they don't get shut out at the window betters, okay? But also with people who were at that track who were not gamblers, who were their kids because it was Secretariat. This was the people's horse. Everybody wanted to see him not only win, but do it in a way that would really be authoritative. I'm looking at him and I think, I've never seen him walk like this before. He looks like the execution man. He's going to the gallows. <laughs> He's about to dispatch somebody. And they're off. Looks like the early lead goes to Mike Gallant. Yes, Mike Gallant going for the lead with Price and Press on the outside. Secretary of the way very well has good position on the rail and in fact is now going up with the leader. Sham had been such a tough competitor for him in the first two races. Uh, he wondered would this finally be Sham's day. My instructions were uh, to, 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 to be very close to Secretaria from the way go. And now it's Sham. Sham and Secretaria are right together into the first turn. Mike Gallant has third behind them. Then it's twice the Prince and the trailer is private smiles as they go by the turn. He just felt like running. That was the day he felt terrific. I said, just leave him alone. I said, just take a long hold and let him run his own race. Ron Turcott, he let him run. Come on, let's see what he's got. You've done the Derby, you've done the Preakness, come on. Let's see how he goes all out. How good can this guy go? They continue down the backstretch. Is that Secretariat now taking the lead? I looked at the teletimer and saw that the horse had gone three quarters of a mile in 109 and two, which is the fastest three quarters of a mile ever run in the Belmont Stakes. And he's leaving Sham at this point. They're moving on the turn now. For the turn at Secretariat. It looks like he's opening. The lead is increasing. He is running and running and running. And I turned to the guy next to me and I said, He's lost the horse. Three and a half. He's moving into the turn. Secretary and holding on to a large lead. Sham is second and then it's a long way back to my gallant and twice a print. And I'm thinking, he has gone insane. And I'm saying, I'm cursing under my breath. You moron. What are you doing? You know, you're going to kill the horse. You're going to lose the triple crown. Don't you know how fast you're going? Nobody knew that that was going to happen. Uh, not the rider, not the trainer, not the owner. I think probably not the horse. Secretary is widening now. He is moving like a tremendous machine. Secretary by 12. Secretary by 14 lengths on the turn. And he still has a quarter of a mile to go. And I'm thinking to myself, he's going to totally collapse in the stretch. He can't keep this up. And I'm asking other guys are on the track, what are you thinking? And everybody to a man is thinking, he's going too damn fast. Secretary is in a position that is impossible to catch. He's into the stretch. Secretary leads his field by 18 lengths. Lucian said to me, oh my God, Ronnie, just don't fall off. Don't fall off. Finally, after I turned for home, my curiosity got the best of me. I had to turn around. When I look at it, I scare myself. They're in the stretch. Secretariat has opened the 22 length lead. He is going to be the triple crown winner. Here comes Secretariat to the wire. An unbelievable, an amazing performance. He hits the finish 25 lengths in front. 25 lengths in front. 
And here's the fallout. I believed in Pegasus that day. I mean, because I saw him. I mean, I never saw anything like that in my life. 31 lengths. I mean, it's a, think of what that, I mean, that's unbelievable. It's like, it's like they were racing on two different racetracks. It was like the Lord was holding the reins. Secretariat was one of his creatures, and he maybe whispered to him a, a go. And that horse really went. It was really an almost supernatural uh, experience. It really was. I leaped up out of my chair at Belmont Park shouting, we'll never see this again. And I get to the elevator to go down to the winner's circle and I'm standing next to Pete Axton. And he said, I used to think that the Allie Fraser fight in Madison Square Garden was the greatest thing I've ever seen. This was even greater. Everybody was speechless. And then when it set in, people were crying. I actually saw people crying at this event. I mean, it was such an overwhelming thing. They were these co-eds lining the rail. And this sounds hard to believe, but I swear half of them were weeping as he went by. Jack Nicholas once called me over and said, you were at the Belmont, you saw that race. And I said, yes. And he said, I was all alone in my living room, watching. And as he came down the stretch, pulling away, I applauded, and I cried. And Haywood said to him, in a, in a brilliant moment of epiphany and insight, he said, Jack, don't you understand? He said, all of your life, in your game, you've been striving for perfection. And he said, at the end of the Belmont, you saw it. When you beat a track record, you normally beat it by a fifth of a second. He knocked two seconds, maybe two and a fifth, off of the track record and won by 31 lengths. It was... There, there's no horse in the history of horse racing could have ever beaten Secretariat on that day. You're not supposed to win majors by a dozen strokes. You're not supposed to score 100 points. And you're not supposed to win the Belmont by 31 lengths. The desperate way in which the losers were so beaten and so battered by this horse, it was the Confederate Army staggering home after Appomattox. I mean, these are all flowery, ridiculous things, and you could say, hey, it's nothing but a horse race. I'm sorry. This horse was an athlete. But this is more than a story about a great American horse. This is the story of a great American team, the team's leader, Penny Chennery. In 1971, with her father a victim of Alzheimer's, the family's horse farm began losing money. Chennery's siblings originally planned to sell the operation when their father could no longer run it. Chenery, however, wanted to try to fulfill her father's dream to win the Kentucky Derby. The housewife and mother of four fired longtime trainer Casey Hayes and hired Roger Lauren to train and manage the Meadow Stable horses. Lauren helped to cut costs and return the operation to profitability before leaving. In May of 1971, Chenery hired his father, Lucian Lauren, and in 1972, they guided the Meadow Farms colt Reva Ridge to victory in the Kentucky Derby and Belmont Stakes. Again, it was a great movie script to have Reva Ridge. Indeed, her farm manager, an old Mr. Gentry, said to me after 1972, oh, I'm sorry, Haywood, for Ms. Tweedy. Next year, she knocked me. She had all that excitement with Reva, and next year, she got nothing. And, of course, nothing was Secretariat. Were it not for Penny Chenery, I think Secretariat would have been as famous and as popular a racehorse, but I don't think we would have remembered him in quite as completely a satisfying way. 
Penny was the perfect owner for Secretariat. Uh, she was this uh, uh, attractive, uh, intelligent, uh, gracious woman. And I think because of her, probably, a lot of the women in America really became interested in Secretariat, maybe more than they would have been had there been uh, a man owner. I hope I've been a role model for women, but it just was never in italics in my uh, game plan. I just happened to be a woman. And that was Penny you were listening to. And when we come back, a few more thoughts on Secretariat, and then we will play you that me, my dad, and American Pharaoh segment we talked about earlier, uh, the last Triple Crown winner, of course, American Pharaoh. And we're talking right now about the greatest Triple Crown winner of all time, Secretariat. This is our American Stories, Secretariat story, continues. In November of 1973, just 16 months since his inauspicious debut, the big chestnut retired and was set to stud at Claiborne Farm in Paris, Kentucky. Shortly after, the Today Show arrived to do a hit on Secretariat. Here's NBC's Tom Hanman and Dick Enberg. And uh, we set up right uh, by the Secretariat paddock. And it was one of the great performances of all time because it was like he knew he was on national TV. He sat there and he posed with his head and his ears and it was like the star knew that the red light was on, it's time to perform. I asked Seth Hancock, now how could you tell? I mean, they all look so magnificent. How, how could you tell that Secretariat was any better than anyone else? He says, you know, it's their eyes. You know, the great athletes have great throwbreds. It's their eyes. And as he said eyes, Secretariat snapped his head and stared at me like that to say, and you better believe it. Just look me right in the eyes. And, and he told me then, he said, even out in the field, when they feed the horses, they wait till Secretariat eats first. In the fall of 1989, Secretariat became afflicted with laminitis, a painful and debilitating hoof condition. When his condition failed to improve after a month of treatment, he was euthanized on October 4 at the age of 19. We decided we'd bury him at 10 o'clock on a Thursday morning. You look at everybody's faces and tears rolling down the cheeks. And, you know, but that's that. You know, you bury him and uh, you be thankful for what you had and go on back to your job and see if you can come close to getting your hands on another one like him, which will never happen and you know it, but that's what you're in it for. Secretariat was given the rare honor of being buried whole. Usually only the head, heart, and hooves of a winning racehorse are buried. The autopsy revealed what every poet knew, that his heart was huge. At 22 pounds, his heart was two and a half times larger than those who ran so far behind him. When I did the autopsy on Secretariat, we were quite astonished. He was certainly unusual. He was almost a, a freak in nature, but a freak in terms of being so abnormally perfect. He had a larger motor, and he was able to crack up oxygen and synthesize it faster and more efficiently than any other horse I've ever seen. He just had a superior power pack, and he was showing it to the world. I wonder what he thought. He must have had a sense of accomplishment. 
every now and then some athlete is touched for a moment with a kind of higher level of greatness which they may never achieve again but at that moment they were more than life allows it was the same thing that Babe Ruth did for baseball there's someone that everyone can relate to think about be amazed about and that's what he did for racing And he really brought American people around, well, around horse racing and actually just brought them together. And that brings us to our American Pharaoh story that I talked to you about before. Gary Ginsburg, the executive vice president of corporate marketing and communications at Time Warner, tells the heartwarming story of he and his father and how they spent summers at the racetrack. And again, American Pharaoh, another Triple Crown winner. Well, here's Gary lamenting about the life 40 years later of he and his dad. Into the stretch, and American Pharaoh makes his run for glory as they come into the final furlong. Frosted is second with one eighth of a mile to go. American Pharaoh's got a two lane lead. Frosted is all out at the 16th pole, and here it is. The 37 year wait is over. American Pharaoh is finally the one. American Pharaoh has won the triple crown. When American Pharaoh crossed the finish line in Belmont Stakes on June 6, 2015, becoming the first Triple Crown winner in 37 years, I cried. After talking with friends who also watched the race, most of us men in our 50s and 60s, I discovered I was not alone. Many of us were overcome by emotion and, as it turns out, mostly for the same reason. We were thinking about our dads. For a generation of American men born during the Great Depression, racing was much more than a five-week diversion from the first Saturday in May to the first Saturday in June. It was an obsession. And the obsession was shared with us, their children, so that in many cases, horse racing came to define the relationship we had with our fathers and the little free time they had to share with us. For me and for so many of my friends Saturday, the one person with whom we all wanted to share this historic moment was no longer by our side. The joy and thrill of the race was tempered by a profound sadness. My dad, Erwin Ginsberg, has had four great passions in life. The law, tennis, his family, and thoroughbred racing, though not necessarily in that order. He developed his fascination with horses as a kid in Buffalo, during what was arguably the sport's hated. Following the exploits of horses like War Admiral and Citation, between the ages of 7 and 18, he had already witnessed an astonishing five Triple Crown winners, and he was hooked. He wanted to make sure I got hooked, too. It's a beautiful Sunday, the one day of the week he didn't go into his law office, was race day. We'd pile into our Chrysler New Yorker and head from our home in Buffalo to the Fort Erie racetrack in Ontario. 
once there, Dad would walk me through the intricacies of the racing form. Speed ratings, past performances, class levels, before placing a series of exotic bets on the fillies and mares traveling the hard-bitten southern Ontario race circuit. When he lost, which was more times than not, he'd angrily crumple the betting slips, ending up with a small mountain under his seat by the end of the day. That horse, named Secretariat, is the reason why one of the greatest crowds in horse racing history has turned out here at Belmont Park in New York to see a... But we were in front of our Zenith TV for the best race of all, the the 1973 Belmont Stakes. Secretariat had already run the fastest Kentucky Derby and Preakness in history and came to the race of champions as the prohibitive favorite. For my dad, it represented the best chance to end a 25-year Triple Crown drought. My 11-year-old self sensed the moment's historic significance, so I brought my tape recording. And you will see Secretariat being led. He is number is two, but he goes into the number one post. Listening to that cassette today, I can hear the tension in my father's voice as the horses make their way to the starting gate. He yells at me to move away from the screen, though the race is still a minute from post. We're ready to go for this tremendous Belmont stick. Then the race starts. And it quickly becomes a two-horse contest, with Secretariat pulling away after the half-mile pole. We're quiet at first, but the silence breaks when I shout, he's going to win. My father shushes me, and we both go quiet again until Secretariat rounds the final turn. Secretariat is widening now. He is moving like a tremendous machine. Secretariat by 12. Secretariat by 14 length on the turn. Sam is dropping back. My father starts repeating, oh my God, oh my God. But Secretariat is all alone. He's out there almost a sixteenth of a mile away from the rest of the horses. While I'm unable to control my prepubescent excitement, I begin screaming again at the screen. Secretariat has opened a 22-length lead. He is going to be the Triple Crown winner. Here comes Secretariat to the wire. An unbelievable, an amazing performance. He hits the finish 25 lengths in front. In the years that followed, we watched Seattle Slew and Affirm win their Triple Crowns and continued our Sunday traditions at the track. Eventually, with me adding to the mountain under our seats, thanks to my paper route earnings. Then I left Buffalo for college, law school, and life in New York, and another Triple Crown drought set in. A decade ago, my father found out he had Alzheimer's. His mom, dad, and brother had all had the disease. He had feared it his entire adult life, and now he was to suffer the same fate. He was forced into a retirement he never wanted. But his love of horses endured. Three summers running, I took him to the Saratoga race course until the betting became too complicated for him. But the Belmont still held a special place. Even as his brilliant mind declined, twice he managed to travel by himself from Buffalo to New York with hopes of witnessing one more triple crown alongside his son and twice we were denied. Standing side by side, watching first Smarty Jones and then Big Brown lose in heartbreaking fashion were among the happiest moments of my dad's retirement and of my adult life. Victor, you just won the Belmont Stakes and with it, ended the 37-year drought and got your first Triple Crown finally. Just after the Belmont this year, my face still flushed from crying, I called my mom in Buffalo to see if dad had watched. No, they hadn't watched the race. 
He wouldn't know a horse from a rabbit, she said. Instead, they were sitting at the table, having dinner. My father oblivious that his 37-year wait for another Triple Crown winner was over. Well, you might not be able to feel how fast he's going, but I can feel how happy you are. Let's go to Kenny Rice. I started to cry all over again. And thank you for that. Me, my dad, an American pharaoh, and secretary at horse racing for the hour, storytelling like only we do here on Our American Stories. And great job, as always, Greg and the team for all the work they do. our American stories and we love to tell stories of people who've risen above their circumstance risen above adversity and today we have a story of a woman who's done just that and is now giving back to her community take it away Faith nothing in the world is worth having or worth doing unless it means effort pain difficulty I have never in my life envied a human being who led an easy life. I have envied a great many people who led difficult lives and led them well. Theodore Roosevelt Trials, difficulty, money shortages, empty fridges, unpaid electric bill, unpaid water bill. These are the realities that many Americans face. Some families face small difficulties. While for others, it involves losing your job, not being able to pay rent, and then getting kicked out of your home or apartment. And according to the American Congress of Obstetricians and Gynecologists, women and families are the fastest growing segment of the homeless population, with 34% of the total homeless population composed of families. Of these homeless families, 84% are headed by women. Now, being homeless can feel, well, hopeless. But for Vanessa Howard, not only did she work herself out of homelessness, she is now giving back in amazing ways. Helping those who have been in the same situation that she has. And how is she doing this? She does this by providing free haircuts and makeovers in her salon called Giving Hands. Let's begin by hearing her tell her story. Now, how did Vanessa end up homeless in the first place? Um, I was actually living with living with my grandmother. My grandmother passed away. My grandmother was like the she was like the backbone of our family. She kind of reminded me of a mother Teresa. I think I, I think I have a lot of ways like my grandmother in terms of how I give. She would, you know, take in homeless people. She would take in just, you know, she, she would give the clothes off of her back. She lived in a project. She would feed everybody, clothe everybody, and whoever had a need, she was there. I was living with her. She passed away. Um, I went through some other things that was very detrimental. <clears throat> so that's, that's how I literally became homeless. It was, yeah, it was, a, it was definitely, definitely a, a breaking point. I lost my grandmother and then also um, my children's father portrayed, uh, portrayed me. I mean, uh, yeah, he was unfaithful and it was just a lot to take. She was a homeless single mother 
with a five-year-old, a three-year-old, and a two-year-old. There were many times where she wanted to commit suicide and wanted to end the pain, the hurt, the hurt that she felt from abandonment, from abuse. But she told me about times when she would be crying, when her kids would come and comfort her, tell her that it was going to be okay. Kids understand more than we realize. So in the midst of all of this struggle, she thought to cry out to God. So why was it that she turned there? What led me to, I, I really can't tell you what led me, just, just being at the, the, the darkest place I've ever been in in my entire life is really what made me cry out to God. I, I didn't grow up in a church background, so I didn't really, it, w- it wasn't like I was taught religion or I was brought to church that made me or I was coming back to my roots or anything because I wasn't brought up in church. You know, as a matter of fact, part of my life at the age of 12, my mom and my stepdad was, was on drugs. They were strung out on drugs. So um, I really didn't have any background that made me cry out to God but what I just truly believe in my heart is that it's just you know I know we've been created by God and so I believe because I've been created by him that what's in me is going to come out so I believe I cried out because there was really nowhere else to turn matter of fact when I prayed the prayer I just said God if you are real please help me and my children after this last ditch effort of praying and crying out to God something amazing happened. When I got up the next day, I felt like there was hope. I don't know how to explain it, but I felt like something happened with that prayer and I didn't understand it. And I said, well, let me just go do one more try with the little money that I had. And I looked in the newspaper and saw that they were renting this, renting this place and I caught the bus. And, and, and lo and behold, you know, when I walked in the room, I mean, I just literally walked in the door. And when I walked into the place, the guy, he kind of looked at me really weird, like a double take. And he was like, I don't know you, ma'am. But he says, I feel like you're supposed to have this place. Like something is telling me to give you this place. He's like, it's really weird. But he was like, if you want it, you can have it. He didn't ask me to fill out an application or anything. As a matter of fact, I didn't even call the man back for two weeks. And he still held the apartment for me because I was afraid because I didn't have all the money. And so I called him during the time when this lady was kicking me and my children out at 2 o'clock in the morning. I called him up and and I was crying on the phone. And he was like, ma'am, I've been holding this place for you for two weeks. He was like, you know, you told me you want it. I told you you can have it. And I told him, you know, I was homeless and me and my children are being kicked out right now on the streets. And he was like, well, just if you can find a way to get to an apartment now, I'm, I will give you the place. I will, I will meet you over there and give you the, the keys to the apartment. And I literally had to hold back tears because this man, he doesn't know my situation. He don't know that I'm suicidal. I was just blown. I was blown away. And I had been looking for places. Nobody would rent to me because I didn't have any background or You know, I didn't have a job at the time, so nobody would give me anything. And so I was looking for a job. I mean, everything was just falling apart in my life. And so, like I said, I prayed that prayer. The very next day, I felt different. I can't even explain it. I just felt different. I felt like there was hope. And after moving into this apartment, her life continued to change. I moved upstairs and I believe that God moved, I believe that was the door he opened for me because I moved upstairs to a minister and they started doing Bible study with me and um, yeah, well my life was, there was something else to the story, my life was almost taken, I got in a relationship with this guy who tried to kill me 
and finally got prayed and asked him to get out of my life. He didn't want me to go to church. And and the, it was a minister that lived upstairs and she literally started um, teaching Bible study out of her house, you know, to me. And I would go up there and, and um, so once, you know, he was out of my life and I was able to really, really dedicate my life to Christ. And when we come back, more of Vanessa's story and faith plays such a central role in so many American stories that we put it right there too, whenever it should be there. More on Vanessa's story here on Our American Stories. This is Our American Stories, and we've been listening to Vanessa Howard's story. She's the owner of the salon called Giving Hands, a salon that offers free services to the less fortunate. We left off with her recounting how she pulled herself out of homelessness. Let's return to Faith and her story about Vanessa Howard. So she got off the streets and got her life back on track. But... How did the salon get started? And how was it that she started doing hair? I've always been gifted to do hair. I've I've always did hair, did family members hair, you know, back when we lived in Wisconsin. When we moved here, it's when, uh, and as a teenager, you know, if I can go back, you know, I did want to always, I said, I always want to own a salon, a beauty salon and and everything. And that was kind of like a part of my dream. And I just kind of let it go because my life just took a turn. Yeah, so when we moved here is when, you know, the Lord spoke to me and said, um, I want you to, you know, go to school and get your, your license and go to hair. And he said, and then that's when he started giving me the name of it and, and the vision of it and the purpose of the salon and everything. And and so I was like, okay, you know, and so um, um, that's when, you know, Giving Hands Beauty Salon, I actually worked at a few salons prior to starting opening up the salon. Yeah, so I opened up the salon of January 2014 and May 4, 2014, he told me to start. And I didn't have a clue of what I was doing. I didn't know, you know, I just know what he told me to do and I just kind of went as I, you know, I just kind of did it. I didn't have like a full blueprint of how, to, I didn't know how it was going to turn out. I didn't know, I just knew. He told me to just have these broken women come in and children and, and the youth. And he said, I just want you, I want you all to just pour love upon them. The women come in and get makeovers, their hair done, nails, eyebrows, and whatever else that they need in order to feel beautiful and confident. You know, we spend about anywhere between six to eight hours with these women. Uh, building them up, building their confidence, their self-esteem, praying for their needs. You know, we have a 98% success rate in terms of the women have gotten jobs and homes after leaving uh, the spa days. And so, yeah, so we do a full catered lunch every single time. We always, you know, we, we, we make sure we feed them really good. We have break bread and have lunch with them and talk with them. 
and then we serve the services on them and you know we try to serve them hand and foot we literally try to lay the red carpet out for them because they are although they're going through what they're going through you know um they are loved and they are they are somebody even in that estate and that's really my point that i'm trying to get out because i didn't have that support i didn't have somebody telling me that they love me and telling me that you know that i'm beautiful and that i'm special or i'm this or i'm that i didn't have that so i want to make sure that doing the this doing their transition that they have that And while Vanessa did not have that support, she wants to make sure others are getting what they need to overcome their difficulties. That's pretty incredible. Vanessa shares a story of a woman who came to receive this service and continued to keep up with them after. So most of the women who come to the to the, to the give back or to the spa days, most of them come and they of course they're in the, they're in the shelter, they don't have they um they don't have jobs. you know um they don't have anywhere to stay so um so they most of them interview after coming that's why i said um one shelter gave us the success rate and said first of all when the ladies leave they're like so overwhelmed with so, they said they never felt so so loved and they come back and they tell all the other women and they said they go and always interview so confident and so built up I have a few several women that I still keep in contact with and one of them actually volunteer um with us. She's a part of the team now. And one of them actually got that got a job and um at a radio show and her first her first guest she had me on. And I was just so blown away cuz I'm sitting across from her with the same one that we you know we helped, we prayed for, we she not only got, you know, she got a job and she's like running this radio station. and I was so honored because she said she wanted me to be her first guest. And this was the same lady that came in so broken, so hurt, um had been a part of the uh, abuse in relationships, the domestic violence, and and just to watch her just a couple months after coming here just flourish. It's amazing. And one of the most amazing things that the salon has done for women is encourage and empower them. And sometimes it is done with just one word. There was a 62-year-old lady that came to one of our events from one of the shelters and I have a habit of calling women beautiful. It's just what I do, you know, because I believe all women are beautiful inside and out. And I said, you know, my my um volunteers kind of say what I say. So the the lady walked in and she literally was only in the salon maybe about a couple minutes. We had just greeted them. I talked to them about giving hands, uh the foundation and everything. um told them why they were there we were just there to love on them and to serve them today we want you to relax make yourself at home so everybody was hugging you know, my volunteers always always hug the ladies and you know love on them and tell them hey beautiful how are you you know you're so beautiful and they always call them beautiful and the 62-year-old lady i was set her down to do her eyebrows and she just started bawling crying and i'm like well what's wrong what's wrong love you know what's wrong beautiful she was like You're not going to believe this. She said I'm already full and I've just gotten here. She said if if the rest of the day is going to be like this, she was like I my cup is going to overflow. She said you're not going to believe this, but I'm 62 years old and I've never heard those words directed to me. I've never I've never heard anybody call me beautiful. You know, and so it reminded me literally of where I come from. Not really getting that support outside of my grandmother. I just Oh god, I'm tearing up. 
it just broke my heart, you know. This lady is 62 two years old and nobody's ever told her. She's never heard those words direct, you know, personally said to her. You know, the need out here is just so great. And through these acts of kindness, Giving Hand Salon is meeting that need. In light of what she has been through, Vanessa offers all of us some perspective on those around us. But you know, sometimes in life, we, you know, we stay in our little small worlds and we stay in doing our own thing. It's just about me and mine. And we forget about this big world that people are out here and people are hurting. People are going through. People are struggling. People are, you know, um, a lot of women, you know, are masking with just outer beauty. And within, they're broken. You know, they're hurting. They, you know, they look good on the outside, but the inside is just so empty and they don't feel love. They don't feel like they're somebody, you know. And so... That's really my mission. My mission is really to bring people to Christ and allow them to experience the love that he demonstrated to me 25 years ago. And um, that's my mission. That is my mission. It's really to build one soul, one person at a time, you know, and, and to share that, that, that love, share that love. It gets even better because this is not just Vanessa's service. Her whole family is involved. Her kids and her husband are immensely supportive and have a heart for the homeless as well. And they don't plan on it ending here. Vanessa Howard, in light of all of her difficulties, has a vision for an even brighter future. So this is not just, you know, a give back. It's, it's, it's my ministry as well. I want to, my, the bigger picture for this is I'm going to open up my own shelter. Um, I actually had a vision while I was homeless of a shelter, God took me into an open vision and showed me the shelter. I firmly believe that everything that I've been through, every tear, every cry, every hurt, every pain, you know, it, being a, feeling abandoned, uh, even, you, you know, and not accepted even by my mom, I know that all that has have a purpose. There is in every woman's heart a spark of heavenly fire, which lies dormant in the broad daylight of prosperity. but which kindles up and beams and blazes in the dark hour of adversity. Washington Irving. Vanessa, she knows and believes that her pain has had a purpose. And it most certainly has. This is Faith Garcia from Our American Stories. And thanks for that, Faith. And thank you, Vanessa, for teaching us all about the role and reminding all of us about the role that Faith and love of God has for so many Americans. And what a, what a life-saving ministry she's in, engaged in now. I never heard anyone call me beautiful, one of the women that she tends to said. Just imagine that. And that's the kind of story we bring you here on Our American Stories, uh, stories we hope that'll make you laugh, think, or cry, and we never avoid the hard ones and the sad ones, because right on the other end of that pain and loneliness was the purpose for Vanessa and for any of you out there who are going through hard times. At least for many of us, there's refuge in God, in friends, and in total strangers. This is Lee Habib, Vanessa's story, here on Our American Stories.
is Our American Stories, where we love to tell you stories about the things that matter in your life. From sports to the arts, and that's music and movies, straight through to history and to the personal. And by the way, from the personal we mean, well, love and death and marriage. Stories that make you think or laugh or cry. That's what we do here. No screaming, no yelling. And to hear all that we do, go to ouramericannetwork.org. This next story is so bizarre that most people think it's an urban legend, even though it's very much a true story. This is the tale of Lawn Chair Larry. Here's Jesse. Larry Walters had always dreamed of flying. By the age of 13, on a visit to an Army-Navy surplus store, he saw several empty weather balloons hanging from the store's ceiling and thought that it would be an interesting way to attain flight. When he came of age, he enlisted in the United States Air Force with the hope of finally learning to fly. However, it was discovered that he had poor eyesight, thus killing his flight career before it could even begin. After leaving the Air Force, Walters began to hatch his plan. His idea was to attach a couple of helium-filled weather balloons to a lawn chair, then cut away an anchor and float above his own backyard at a height of about 30 feet for just a couple of hours. 33-year-old Larry Walters was now living in North Hollywood and working as a truck delivery man for a film production company when he invested $4,000 in his project, purchasing nearly four dozen surplus weather balloons. Under the guise of being for use in filming a television commercial, he also purchased compressed helium cylinders, a sturdy aluminum lawn chair from Sears, and various other bits of equipment for the flight. Walters even learned how to skydive and planned on wearing a parachute for the flight, just in case. The night before the launch of a short test flight of the contraption, Walters and several friends met up at the San Pedro home of Carol Van Dusen, Larry's then-girlfriend. The crew inflated balloons throughout the night and rigged together the chair and assorted equipment. At 11 o'clock in the morning of July 2nd, 1982, Walters sat atop his lawn chair under his towering apparatus, christened Inspiration One. Four tiers of helium balloons, over 40 in total, rose tall above him. The flight plan called for Walters and his balloons to fly out over Long Beach and 300 miles east towards the Mojave Desert. He was equipped with an altimeter, a parachute, a life jacket in case of a water landing, a two-liter bottle of Coca-Cola, a sandwich, and a Citizens Band CB walkie-talkie radio. He also carried a BB gun pistol. His idea was to shoot the balloons one by one to gently lower his altitude when it was time to come down. Now tethered to the ground by three lines tied up to the bumper of a jeep, Walters waited with anticipation as the ropes were to be cut. But after his girlfriend cut one of the tethers holding the craft to the ground, the other two ropes snapped suddenly. The balloons and Walters and his lawn chair were rocketed skyward. His eyeglasses ripped from his face, and he was soaring upwards at an alarming rate. He had only expected to attain a flight level of 100 feet off the ground. Using the CB radio that he had brought along for the ride, he radioed his girlfriend on the ground. Here's the actual audio from that fateful flight. Ron, cut him down. Larry, cut him down. You've got to come down if you can't see. Cut him down. I've got 
got my other glasses. I can see perfectly. Don't worry. You copy. Over. I copy. Are you sure you're okay? There's trees up there. We can hear them. Are you okay? I'm okay. I'm going through a thin fog layer. Over. My altitude is 1,500 feet. See marine land right now. So you can see marine land. So you're heading toward. Oh my God! You're going towards the ocean already. Fearing that he might unbalance the load, he didn't dare shoot any of the balloons with his BB gun. Instead, he spent about two hours up in the sky at 16,000 feet, over three miles high. From San Pedro, Walters and his balloons began to drift over Long Beach and cross the primary approach path of Long Beach Airport. Yeah, I wish I was a bird. Birds can fly. Airline pilots from both TWA and Delta reported seeing him to the control tower. Walters grabbed his CB radio again, this time using Channel 9, the designated emergency channel, and attempted to notify the tower. They were in disbelief of what they were hearing. Now shivering in the thin, high-altitude air, Walters finally used his BB gun to start popping balloons in order to lower his altitude. Now descending... He aimed as best he could to land at the Virginia City Country Club in Long Beach, but he came down just short of the golf course and headed into a residential neighborhood. He dumped out the gallon jugs of water tied to the lawn chair to slow his landing, but on the way down, his balloons draped over a set of power lines. Left dangling five feet off the ground, the police had to shut down electricity in Long Beach for 20 minutes in order for Walters to safely climb out of his contraption down and into the backyard of a house in Long Beach. He was immediately arrested by waiting members of the Los Angeles Police Department. When asked by a reporter why he had done it, Walters replied, quote, A man can't just sit around. The Federal Aviation Administration was initially baffled by the incident, and Walters had been catapulted unexpectedly and unprepared from obscurity to national fame. In December of 1982, Walters was accused by the FAA of committing several violations of the Federal Aviation Act. The resulting fines totaled $4,000. Walters went on to tour as a motivational speaker after his flight. He quit his job as a truck driver, but was never able to make much money from his fame. Walters even accepted invitations to appear on The Tonight Show with Johnny Carson and Late Night with David Letterman. We're delighted to have this gentleman with us tonight. Please welcome Larry Walters. This is a phenomenal thing. Where did you get the idea to do this? Uh, when did it hit you? You said it was a 20-year dream? Yes, sir. Uh, it hit me when I was a uh, young boy, about 13 years old. I was in an Army Navy surplus store. So a weather balloon dangling from the ceiling. And I just got the idea uh, to put uh, to inflate these balloons, and I figured if I had enough of them, it'd lift me. Uh-huh. The idea was just, you know, the float. Yeah. And I was fascinated by it, and I fulfilled the 20-year dream. But Larry Walters never found happiness. Later on in his life, Walters hiked into the San Gabriel Mountains and shot himself in the heart. He left no suicide note. And that's the story of Lawn Chair Larry. For Our American Stories, I'm Jesse Edwards. When he was a young man, he dreamed of flying high. He dreamed of flying far above his home and through the clear blue sky. Larry, Larry, come down. Larry, come down if you can't see. Come down. I've got my other glasses. I can see perfectly. Don't worry. Larry had poor vision. The Air Force turned him down. 
And just a great job, Jesse. And you know, the thing about Americans is we're always trying to test boundaries. And we love aviation stories here on Our American Stories. And you want to hear a stem winder about a couple of crazy guys who tested some boundaries? Listen to David McCullough on our show and his book, The Wright Brothers. These were two crazy guys tinkering with air travel long before anyone else could get up in the air. These two bicycle mechanics were doing it. In the fields of Kitty Hawk, North Carolina, they were crazy, they were wild, they were unqualified, and they did it. And that's what Americans do. They do crazy things in their spare time. We cover those stories, the famous ones like the Wright Brothers, and the sort of kind of famous ones like Lawn Chair Larry. Lawn Chair Larry's story, here on Our American Stories. can get quite thin, the temperature is freezing. This is Our American Stories, where we love to bring you great stories about love, death, music, sports, work, every sphere of American life. And we especially love to hear your stories. And make sure you go to OurAmericanNetwork.org and write to us with your story, and we'll help you record it. Today's story is brought to us by Dana Mish, and she shares with us a piece of her family's story, a piece that occurred at Buchenwald, one of the very first Nazi concentration camps and the largest one on German soil. And it's a story that she shared in the publication The Times of Israel, and she graciously recorded it for us. Here's Dana. A few months ago, I stood at Buchenwald in a large open field that was covered in an endless expanse of rocky gray gravel. The ground that I gazed at before me was where the barracks once had been. On that unnaturally humid and sunny afternoon, thunder ominously clapped from heavy storm clouds that loomed off in the distance. The skies certainly echoed my state of mind. As for anyone that visits a concentration camp, it was a particularly sobering and gut-wrenching experience. But for me, it was more than just emotional. It was personal. Why was I there? To learn about my grandfather, who had stood on that very ground some 78 years prior, and reconnect with his life, his journey, his story. The morning after Kristallnacht, at the age of 25, my grandfather was arrested by the SS and taken to Buchenwald as a part of the special pogrom, the first ever mass deportation and internment of Jews at that camp. 
He arrived on November 13, 1938, before the barracks were even built. And for three or four days and nights, he waited among 10,000 other Jews in the freezing winter rain to receive a roof over his head and a 20-centimeter wide wooden sleeping plank. Many who were there with him during that time didn't survive, and I will always remember the tears that came to my grandfather's eyes in the video interview we have of him, as he hesitatingly rehashed the horrors that befell those around him, frequently and at random. He was one of all too few who was miraculously able to flee Germany during the Holocaust, and I owe my life to his luck. But his journey wasn't over when he got to the United States. Mere weeks after officially becoming an American, he was drafted into the army. He was shipped off to Europe, back into the eye of the storm, just five years after his time at Buchenwald. And as a soldier in a replacement depot, despite only having gone through basic training, no infantry training, he was nevertheless thrown into combat during the Battle of the Bulge. He fought against the Nazis with the ultimate goal of invading his homeland and, yet again, narrowly lived to tell the tale. He ended up living a very full life. He passed away in 1999 at the age of 85, when I was just 11 years old. But as for my return to Buchenwald, it was actually another more recent death in the family that served as the catalyst. By the time I stood on the same ground that my grandfather had this past September, my father had been gone from us for nine months. He was my grandfather's firstborn, and he had wanted to be able to share his dad's heroic story with the world. So my visit, both to Buchenwald and also afterward to my grandfather's hometown, was to remember the two of them my grandfather's persistence, and my own father's admiration. It was to pay homage to the sacrifices they made and the pride they held in raising a family, in continuing our lineage. The reasons behind my journey ebbed and flowed in my mind as I read a passage that was embedded in stone amongst the gray gravel I stood on at the camp. It read, So that the generations to come might know the children yet to be born, that they too may rise and declare to their children. As a member of the third generation of Holocaust survivors in the U.S., this struck a chord with me. Living now at a distance, both across generations and oceans, from the horrible tragedy that resulted from Hitler's Nazi regime, I had always felt somewhat detached from it. In fact, few of my friends knew the extent of my grandfather's story. That is, until I recently chose to rise and declare it. And now, as my own father's firstborn, carrying forward his lineage, it's something that I too am committed to rising and declaring for future generations as well. There's something sacred about the kind of cycle created by generations, which is really just to say, people that share a heritage over time. 
And in Judaism, we observe these sacred cycles that connect us with our earliest ancestors in one way the most, through the high holidays of Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur. In that light, it should come as no surprise that the name of the book that we use on these holidays, the Machzor, shares the same root with the Hebrew word for return, Chazara. We reliably return to these traditions, thus completing a sacred cycle, to remind us of all that we have inherited and all that we will carry forward. When distilled down to their roots, that's what Yom Kippur and Rosh Hashanah are all about, respectively. Remembering and thinking back on our past and looking into the future. As I stood at Buchenwald several months ago, on the ground that held all that it did, my present moment joined together the history that came before me and my future yet to come. Through that return I made into a difficult past, one that altered destinies and set my own life into motion so many years ago, I began a kind of intergenerational remembering. But I also felt that I began a kind of healing because in that moment, I realized that even though my grandfather and father were both gone, I still carried parts of them within me that I would perpetuate into the future. This year, my hope is that we can all make our own important returns, whether they're on foot or in our minds. Because when we seek out the source of who we are, we end up moving forward into the new year with the two things that have always kept us firmly rooted remembrance and hope and thank you for that Dana and in her story Dana mentioned a video interview of her grandfather and we asked her about it and she said it was done by the Shoah Foundation a group founded by Steven Spielberg to capture video interviews with survivors and witnesses of Shoah the Hebrew term to describe the Holocaust and their work has since expanded into documenting many more genocides. In total, they've captured a whopping 55,000 video testimonies. Here's a clip from their interview with Dana's granddad, Arthur Hecht, who was 83 years old at the time and recalled his time at Buchenwald. They had roll calls, you know, we had to stand outside. And in front of you, left and you, right of you, and back of us, they were killing people. You have no idea how. You have no idea, with spades, with, you have no idea. That I pulled through was just a miracle. And here's one more clip of Arthur talking about why the Nazis allowed him to leave the concentration camp in its early days. Only because I could leave Germany at that time. When you could leave Germany, they let you out. And I had to sign that I leave within four weeks or three weeks, I leave to Germany. If not, I go back to the, to the concentration camp again. Leaving wouldn't be an option later on. It's estimated that 240,000 prisoners went through Buchenwald and 56,545 died there, a death rate of 24%. 8,483 of them were shot dead. 1,100 were hanged. 154 died from being used as human experiments, ranging from testing vaccines 
to determining the precise fatal dose of a poison. Two Austrian priests were crucified upside down. These are realities that most of us are unaware of. We know of these concentration camps as among the darkest moments in human history, but we don't truly know their stories and the stories of the people who were there. And here on Our American Stories, we're committed to telling those stories. The Americans who are here because of some of the great heroic things that happened, some just by luck, and also some of the memories of people who, well, didn't survive. All of it here on Our American Stories. And thanks to Dana Mish and the Shoah Foundation for sharing the Hecht's family story. And if you want to see two great documentaries, The Sorrow and the Pity and Shoah are outstanding. They're highly recommended here from this show. Again, thanks to Dana and her family. Their story here on Our American Stories. <laughs>